Welcome to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire podcast. We are your hosts. I am Hunter Johnson. And I'm Thomas Baldridge. Well, Thomas, we got a pretty good rain over here. Did y'all get anything? Yeah, uh, two two rounds uh, put us a little over an inch and a half, maybe. Well, that's what I'm showing we got. Now, the the there's a... the. Uh, Corps of Engineers has got a gauge over on the river that we can look at electronically, and it's showing two and a half inches. But I just had an inch and a half in my gauge. But boy, it's awful wet. It's uh, we've uh, we've got a little project going on, and it's been too wet to work on it uh, since the rain or today it is. And we thought we might try it tomorrow, but I think we're gonna wait till Wednesday. It's uh, got a little more moisture out there than an inch and a half. So I don't know. Maybe my gauge is leaking, or maybe I ain't got. Maybe I didn't catch everything in it. I don't know. Well, there there's some other guys not far from me that got, you know, two inches or maybe a little more. Uh I, I think it just kind of the way the way that was, I think it just depends, you know, where where you were. You could move a mile and change a half inch. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's kind of scattered. I know uh we got a contractor here working uh with tractor and dirt scoops, and he was uh he was going to come or he'd planned on not coming uh, this past Friday because they got two inches um, and they just live over at Griffithville, about halfway between me and you. So um, he called and he said, well, I guess it's pretty wet. And I said, no, man, we got less than two tenths, which dry. Let's, it barely settled to dust here. Let's roll. Yeah. So come on and got started. But, um, but yeah, it's uh what they call these uh, multi-million dollar rains when we get them here in July? It's uh these these farmers, boy, it's uh it saves a whole lot of money um when you get a good rain in July. Oh yeah. Yeah, and at least for today anyway, maybe a little bit of tomorrow, um, uh, man, it's the nicest, cool, low humidity day. I mean, we broke a record this morning in Little Rock for a low. I think it was like 65 or something. Oh, wow. I know yesterday the high was like 74. Yeah, it's it it's nice today, but we'll pay for it. Yep. Yep. Yeah, but, it's uh, – I get jealous of them folks up north when we're in this hot sauna summertime. Of course, I don't envy them any in the wintertime, but them northern folks that don't have this heat and humidity – Sure would be nice in the summer. Get a little bit of that. Man, the ducks are the smart ones, you know. Yep. Uh, they, uh, you know, when it when it gets too cold, they they pick up and come on south, and, and it starts warming back up. They head north. I I I don't blame them one bit. No, they hung out till almost turkey season here this year. It was April when they bugged out, and I could do that. I could hang out around here till close to turkey season, and then head north and stay till. About the, about the time uh, rifle season opens and then kind of head back, catch rifle season, duck season, all that, and then hang out till turkey season's over and bug out again. Yeah, that'd be that'd be nice. Uh, some of my dog training and trialing folks, that's what they'll do. The, you know, they may be summering in Montana or North Dakota and then come on down, spend the winter in Texas or something like that, and Man, yep. that's that's not a bad that's not a bad deal as far as the weather goes. Well, our buddy Jimmy Darnell, you know, he got a place in uh northern North Dakota that he goes and spends all summer, and then he's got a spot down in I think it's South Alabama that he spends all winter and uh just to keep them dogs running and yep. keep the weather right for them to be in the water and whatever. So yeah, that would be uh that would be nice. Yeah. I'm gonna take my my wife, family, and everybody with me, though. I don't want yeah. to go it alone like some of these dog trainers do. Uh, and the cool thing is, is you get to leave the mosquitoes and gnats behind. Yes. And the mosquitoes <laughs> yesterday and today were tough in my shop now. <laughs> I bet. I There's bet a trade-off for everything. People says, oh, I look forward to spring. Well, we got gnats so bad that you can't stand to be outside. And then, you know, you get these cool days roll in. Man, it's, it, yeah, it feels good. You can't stand to be out there because the dang mosquitoes are so bad. But, 
you know, when it gets a hundred degrees, we don't have any issues with mosquitoes, but you can't stand to be out in the heat then. Yep. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, uh, you've been doing a little work on your, uh, fishing reservoir. We have. Yeah. So, you know, we had our, uh, our, uh, lake pond, whatever you want to call it, consultant, um, Dustin, he's supposed to do a podcast with us here at some point. He just like everybody else busy and run ragged, but we done, um, so yeah, we've been doing some work. We've done electro fishing survey and we're kind of sampling, you know, we got a unique situation going on. So basically we got too many predators. That's, that's basically what the deal is. And here, let me tell you why. So we had a, a lot of people would call it a turnover, but it's actually not a turnover. What, what happened was, um, and it's, this is pretty common in the South. So about four years ago, we had a great fishery. It was well-balanced. We had, uh, we had catfish, bass, uh, crappie, bluegill, um, and some red ears in there. And everything was pretty sustainable. Everything was doing pretty well. Um, we had a phytoplankton bloom, which is those little green particles you see in the water all over the place. It kind of gives it that green tint. We had it going on pretty hard, and it was late summer, early fall. Water temperature was hot, probably in the 90s. Fish were still doing okay. Phytoplankton was blooming. But we got one of those rains in the middle of the night, one of those, it cooled off kind of like it did yesterday, and that cold rain fell. Well, when that cold rain fell on the surface of that water in the night, and that water was so hot, it killed that phytoplankton. And when that phytoplankton started dying all at once, it sucked the oxygen out of the water, and all the fish died. Well, we thought all the fish died. So, go out there um the following day and i happened to drive past it and i said man where'd all these egrets come from there was these white egrets like all over the place and i mean it was way more than normal usually you know we see egrets all the time but we don't ever see this many i mean there were hundreds and this is a 40 acre reservoir so there was hundreds of egrets and i thought boy that's strange what are they doing well that afternoon, I figured it out, or the next morning, I figured it out. There was dead fish floating everywhere. So I panicked, you know, lots of fish, didn't know what was going on. So I called um, uh, my pond consultant, my fisheries biologist, Dustin. Well, I called uh, a buddy at Game and Fish first and talked to him about it. He told me what he thought had probably happened. So we took a dissolved oxygen meter and we checked it. Well, everything was fine. It had already corrected itself. You know, sun and wind waves uh, will put oxygen back in it. So it had already corrected itself by the time we caught it. But damage was done. Fish had already died. So we done an electro fishing survey and we determined that everything was dead. A complete loss. It got it all. So we didn't worry much about it. We just kind of left it alone. Like I say, this was in probably late August, early September. Well, the following spring, well, so we didn't do anything till spring. The following spring, we restocked um, bass, bluegill, and crappie back into it. What we didn't know was that the bass had spawned late and those little bitty bass fry didn't get killed. All the big fish got killed, but the bass fry didn't. So the bass fry basically had no predators, had nothing, and they all thrived. And probably by the time we restocked it, those largemouth bass had probably got up to four to six inches long and us not knowing it. So when we restocked it, we put uh, 36,000 bluegill, 200 largemouth bass, Florida strain largemouth bass, and we put 1,500 
uh, black crappie, uh, black nose crappie in there. And we let everything rock on. And probably a year, year and a half into it, we realized we don't have no bluegill. Where's all these bluegill gone to? And then we start seeing these bass along the banks and we figured out what had happened. Those bass, fry had survived the fish kill. And now we've got a reservoir, 40 acre reservoir, completely full of these largemouth bass. And they've eaten up all of our bluegill and little crappie. And um, now, now we got a problem. So we decided that we needed, um, we done another electrofishing survey and we decided that the best way to combat this is to probably take a few of the bass out. But the most important thing is to put in more structure. We didn't have enough structure to support bait fish and support these bluegill till they got up big. So we needed basically more spawning habitat, more nesting habitat, more bird rearing habitat for our fish. You know, it's one of the same things we kind of preach for turkey and quail, but we needed this for our fish. And the main reason why is to help guard against predation from these bass eating eggs and eating the young hatch and you could drive along the bank and there would be a school of bluegill up against the bank and they'd be little like half inch to two inches long and there would just be big black schools of them and just off of that school would be six or eight largemouth bass about six to eight inches long and you could sit there and watch them these six to eight bass would stage out there about three foot from them. And then all of a sudden, one or two of these bass would make a lunge, make a run into this school of little baby bluegill. It would scatter them out and then the water would just churn and all of the bass that was out there staged up would feed on these bluegill when they busted up the group. So we started putting structure in it. and. Um, we uh, started having better hatches and more bluegill surviving. And uh, so when we shopped it the other day, that was one of the things we realized is that we were lacking on that. Some of that had broke down again. So that's what I've been doing over off and on over the last couple of weeks is, uh, you know, we got woods kind of grown up around it. So I'm going around it with the track hole and I'll dig around a, a mid-story size tree and push it over and then pick it up with a track hole and swing around and reach out as far as I can in the reservoir and drop it. And then the root wad kind of holds it in place so it doesn't float off till the rest of it gets waterlogged and kind of sinks down. So we're doing that ever so often all the way around it. And we're supposed to have him come back with his habitat barge. We've got a bunch of concrete blocks and we're gonna cut the root wads off of some, load them on his habitat barge, tie them together and sink them out in there further, you know, where we can't reach with the track hole. So that's what I've been working on off and on last week or two. Man, that's a, that's a little bit of a project for sure. It's, it's a pretty good project. You know, we look, we would like to have some artificial structure and it's nice. I, you know, if you got a smaller pond, that's what I recommend, like moss back um, artificial structures or even making your own, but but, you know, that stuff's expensive and it's time consuming to make. And I've got a buddy that that buys a bunch of it. And um, I've seen what $10,000 and $20,000 worth of that artificial habitat looks like sitting on the bank before it's installed. And it's not much. No. So, you know, we're going to use a little bit of that. But the main thing is, you know, we need to do some uh tsi work and it's real easy to cut some of them off pick them up with a track hole throw them on a trailer pull down there slide them off onto the habitat barge ease out across there while you're tying them together with some blocks to them and then roll them off the front man i got a buddy that uh well, a couple buddies that scuba dive a lot and um several years ago 
and I think this was a game of fish project. Um, I, I they took a bunch of pallets. Yep. Stacked them, cabled them together, and sunk them in a undisclosed location. And those guys said it, it is literally better than uh, diving off, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico or or wherever else because the amount of fish that are there. He said it's just insane because they're yeah. using that structure like that. Yeah. And apparently, a, a good old oak pallet, which nowadays they make plastic ones, but uh, good old oak pallet lasts a long time in the water. They will, and we've used a lot of pallets. We went to the sawmill, and they had some cutoffs that were all anywhere from one inch to four inch wide slats, about you know anywhere from a half inch to two inches thick. And we bought a bundle, a big bundle of those that I mean, pretty much covered a sixteen foot uh, utility trailer. They set it on with a forklift. We bought a bundle for like 20 bucks and come back and we had a stack of pallets. And, you know, anytime we were taking a break in the shop over the last couple of years, we were, we had a chop saw rigged up and a screw gun and just kept everything setting out. And we would just start screwing stakes, you know, at all different kinds of angles, making TPs and straight up and all different, you know, horizontal and vertical structure and, and, uh, stacking pallets on top of each other and suspending them with these planks. And so we made a whole bunch of stuff and then we carried them out there with a forklift and set them on the bank. And then we'd set them one at a time on the front of the boat and tie uh, concrete blocks down on them and push them off the front. And shoot, we probably put in 20 of those, I guess, but you know, everything helps. It's just, you know, same thing we preach with these turkeys and quail is and deer too. You know, you just there's no substitute for habitat. You've got to have habitat. And the habitat in that fish pond is guarding our eggs when they're nesting. When the fish are laying eggs, it's guarding our young fish so that they can get up and get big enough to reproduce themselves. Um, you know, we don't want to be stuck in a deal where we're constantly buying fish. And sticking fish in there, it needs to sustain itself at some point, you know, and there needs to be a balance. Of course, you know, we, we've we put crappie in. We don't want too many crappie. So now we've started putting some, some fathead minnows and some golden shiners in there that are nest raiders because we want them to eat some of those eggs. And, you know, so we got to provide habitat for fathead minnows, which require different habitat than what golden shiners do. And then bluegill requires a little different habitat than that. So it's a balance. Um, you can't just throw some artificial structures in there and say, I've got habitat. Everything has a specific, you know, we've even bought pea gravel and we're putting, uh, we've dumped dump truck loads of pea gravel. Now we're putting it in with a bucket on the bobcat next to the bank and then scooping it up with a track hole, reaching out as far as we can and building pea gravel beds you know, all over the place. So yeah, they love that. They do. Everything's got to have something a little different to spawn. And, you know, a lot of people can understand this when we talk about fish that, you know, so you got a pond and you got, um, you, you don't, you know, if, if your crappie can't get big and your bass spawn is, is uh, eaten up and your bluegill, which serve as your bait fish and fun for, you know, catch a mess for supper and kids to catch or whatever if all of those are get, getting eaten up you don't go out there and kill all of your bass and catfish and crappie you know because we want those to get big because we love to catch i mean who doesn't love catching eight pound largemouth and That's uh right. and catching you know two pound crappie so you know we want those but we can't have so many that they're all eating our fish up so you know, you ask the question to your biologist, well, how many is too many? Well, it all depends on your habitat. It all depends on how much habitat you've got to support it. So the number one thing we can do is continue to put in more habitat to support the fish that we've got in there. And yeah. we'll eventually, it will eventually balance itself out. Are we still going to have young fish get eaten? Yeah, just like we're still going to have turkey and quail poults and chicks and eggs get eaten but 
the good comes with the bad. I mean, it, there has to be a balance. Right. That's right. And, and you know what, what always amazes me, and, and I don't know what the difference is, but your, your fishermen, they get that. They understand that they, the, for they the do. most, for the most part, every fisherman can wrap their mind around that. And they understand that chain. When you move over to the hunters, yep. sometimes they tend to not understand that. And that's where we get a breakdown with all these different philosophies on why turkey are declining, why quail have declined and some places they're just gone and, uh, or maybe even why we lose some fawns and things like that. And, um, and then we take it a step further and we talk about what a quail needs versus what a turkey, a quail poult versus a turkey poult versus a fawn. And while they're all very similar, there is some differences there. And um, the, one, the one thing that uh, kind of surprises me you and I were talking earlier, you know, about a, uh, a guy that was in a meeting and, and, you know, they're trying to explain, you know, the habitat and what we need to support turkey poults in particular, and even quail, even, even quail. And, you know, they, they just constantly refute that and say there, there's got to be something else going on. Yes. It, it can't be the habitat. It just can't be the habitat. And, and what I don't understand is, is, um, you know, why there's sometimes a difference in, we can see it in a pond or a reservoir or a lake or a fishery of whatever kind, but we cannot make that correlation to habitat when we're talking about raising, uh, you know, quail and turkey and, and even deer. I mean, it's just really difficult sometimes. And, and I used to, I, you know, I'm right there with everybody else. I used to struggle with the fact that, oh, they're logging here or, oh, that, you know, why would you kill these trees? Or, you know, uh, I used to struggle with some of that myself. Um, now I'm on the opposite end of that. And, uh, you know, I see areas like in the national forest that, that I used to like to hunt that are designated wilderness areas, which are restricted to, you know, foot traffic or a horse or mule basically foot or hoof and uh you know i used to think oh man that's awesome that's the way it, it was back in the day and what i've realized now is that's twelve thousand acres ten thousand acres whatever of of ground that's just totally unmanaged and has been let go and uh we talked about this last week uh and the whole composition of the forest is changing, uh, you know, and there's a lot of factors there that that entire block of woods is not like it was a hundred or 200 years ago. And it's not improved. It's gotten worse. Yep. The only good thing about it is there's not a lot of folks that are willing to walk very far. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's true. And, you know, a natural area, might be okay if you're really going to make it a natural area. But that means that if it catches on fire, you can't put it out. Right. So if, if, if you want it to be like it was hundreds of years ago before man touched anything, you got to quit putting the fires out. If a wildfire burns across it, you got to let the wildfire burn across it. Yep. If, a, if a, somebody's herd of cows gets in there, you got to leave them. Let yep. them graze it. Yep. Till, till they move off for whatever reason. Till they move off, till they deplete it and move off like the buffalo used to. That's right. That's right. And you know, we we sometimes don't think like that. And you know, we're we're sitting here engaged, and we've been you know pushing brood habitat contest and and all that. We've got all those submissions. Some guys have submitted some really good uh, photos, and uh, you know, we've been trying to get all that that graded and and see who's going to win win the contest prizes uh so we sometimes don't think about even the simplest of structure can can be uh thermal cover summer or winter thermal cover and then it can also turn around and be structure to avoid and escape predation and uh we don't 
you know, we don't think about that. Uh, whereas we do think about that with fish. I mean, every guy I know that fishes has either tried to find a brush pile or build his own brush pile to go back and fish year after year after year. Well, there's a reason for that. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So shifting gears just a touch, ran into a neighbor this morning and he was telling me about, um, he showed me some pictures of some hogs that he'd got on camera um, on the 7th of July, which wasn't that long ago. I haven't seen any hog sign in a while. So he pointed at where he had, where the camera was set up, where he had saw them, and it's right beside what we call the Lost 40. Well, I've done a video about the Lost 40 here um I don't know, a couple of years ago about what I had planned to do to it in the future. Well, I haven't got to that yet, but one thing that I did do now, this is uh so little history on this lost 40, it floods. I can't keep the river out. Nothing's been done to it. And the only red oak species that are out there in this bottomland hardwoods are so big, you can't even start to reach around them. They're just huge, big uh, nut all oaks uh, and willow oaks in places. There is no regeneration. There is no red oak species out there that's any smaller than probably 24 inch diameter. So we've had no regeneration in years. What we do have is a solid mid story of junk shade tolerant junk tree species that have grown up in amongst all of these big huge red oak species that are providing zero wildlife benefit so in the video that i've done and posted facebook or youtube or something back a couple years ago i had talked about how we were going to do a tsi project across this 40 acres well i had some people tell me now if you can't control the flooding there's no sense doing that. That understory is non-existent because it floods so much, not because sunlight can't get hit the ground. Well, I disagreed with that. But it has kind of put it down my list of things to get to because I'm like, you know what? Well, they could be right. But last year, we were extremely dry uh, coming into duck season. And the neighbors had started pumping water and some of it had backed off onto this lost 40, which is fine. We don't care. Um, neighbors were flooding some fields to duck hunt and it backed up in a ditch that backed out into this. And I thought, you know, hey, there's a 20 acres flooded in there. We might get some early duck shooting, but it was too thick to, uh, to duck hunt. So there was a couple places that a couple big dead trees had fell over, wind had blown them down or something. So I took the trico in there and cleaned them up, pushed them off to the side and thought, while I'm here, I'm going to clean out a hole that we could duck hunt in this timber. And I started taking out some junk mid-story trees and these two big trees were gone. So I took all of them out, kind of pushed them to the side. Well, this is the area I hadn't been into it since last year when I'd done that work. Um, I hadn't even been back there. But this is where he saw the hogs at. So I went in there looking for hog sign. And, you know, the areas that I had pushed out to make these couple of duck holes and this road back into it were grown up in early secessional plants. They're probably waist high now. And it's the only place that any vegetation whatsoever is growing. And if you look real close around the edges, there's some three or four inch tall little red oak tree sprouts growing around the edges of that. Now, that is proof right there that you can do a little bit of work and get all kinds of habitat on the ground and improve regeneration. Yeah. Yeah, somebody's liable to kill a big old deer back there if they'll go set in a stand. You ain't kidding. And that, that bumped that project up my list to where I might put the saw on the front of the skid steer and start on that like next week, like, yeah. And go in there and do some whacking. If, if I can get results like that in less than one growing season, like a half of a growing season, because the water come off of that probably 
Water come off of that in like mid to late April. And I've got waist high forbs growing everywhere sunlight's hitting the ground now. Um, and I've got good moist soil everywhere. Um, put sun like what's what's the baseball show filmed out in Iowa in the cornfields? Uh, if you build it, they will come. Yeah, uh, field of dreams. Yeah, field of dreams. We put a little sunlight on the ground. You're going to get some early successional habitat, and you're going to get some regeneration. And that that whole forty acres is lacking that. And it's the way it's set up now. People say, well, why don't you deer hunt this? Well, because you can walk to the edge of it and squat down and look, and you could see if a deer was standing all the way for a quarter mile all the way across it, because there is no vegetation lower than head high growing anywhere in there. There's no limbs that have any green on them, even right now, except these areas that I pushed out to make these duck holes, and they're grown up waist high. So Proof's in the pudding. We got to get to work. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it, it's always amazing to me what, you know, just a, a little bit um, will go a long ways. And I tell people all the time, you know, go go do it. Go go test a small spot and see what happens if you don't believe. And yep. then, you know, the only thing you're losing is a little bit of time. And, uh, you know, and then you'll, you'll see what's going to happen. You'll see what responds, uh, you know. And the other thing I tell people is you can get quick results. Everybody, and I agree that the long haul, you know, to get where we are now, with close canopy forests, with, you know, invasives and, you know, aggressive things like cedars that have, you know, shown up in places they shouldn't be historically and all that stuff. I, I agree that, you know, it took a long time to get here and it's going to take us some time to get it back. But uh, if you just go do it now, you will see results soon. Now, it, it may not be as good results as you'll see in year two or three or five or 10, but man, you got to start somewhere. And when you start, you're going to start, it really does kind of excite you, you know, because it's almost like uh, a payday in essence, you know, you, you wind up driving back out there and see, you're like, Oh man, look at this. Um, now there's a few times I drive out there and say, Oh Lord, what in the world is going on here? And, and you've got a problem to deal with, but, um, but usually, man, it's it's really cool stuff that that's you know showing up and it, and it just excites you and, and it's very rewarding. I guess is is what I'm saying. That's the part of it that does uh, keep you going, keeps you motivated. Well, I think for me, you know, something like I just described, or you know, just take a hatchet and you go out and you think, man, I got this one big tree that happens to be an ash or a bitter pecan or a sweet gum or something that's not beneficial, even an overcup here, something that's not very beneficial, but it's big and it's it's got big branches and it's shading out a bunch. And there's a whole bunch of shade tolerant uh, tree species in the mid-story growing, you know, in a 50-foot radius around it. So I'm going to try, I'm going to hack and squirt. I'm just going to kill this one big tree and a dozen shade tolerant species that's growing underneath it. And then when you go back the next year to check on it and you jump a big mature buck out of it, 140 or 150 inch buck, or you jump a group of six or eight does out of it, or you see a hen with a group of poults run out of it when you pull up, that's all I need. That that fires me up and that excites me. And uh, same way with this pond, when you put in structure, and you pull over it with the depth finder and you see all the little bait fish that's on it, or you ride around it bush hog in the levee and you can look and see some of it in clear water and you can see schools of bluegill around it clinging to it. That fires me up. That's that's what it's all about. That's why we do what we do. Yep. Yep, for sure. For sure. So with that being said, I know we mentioned on the last podcast that our brood habitat contest has ended and uh, the scoring process has started. So I've been kind of working on that a little bit, trying to assign a score to some of these. And uh, looks like we've got 
63 entries is what I come up with. So pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty salty for the first year of kind of a, you know, a grassroots deal. You know, I mean, we didn't, we didn't really get any, uh, what do you want to call it? But, you know, we, we didn't get support from some big outdoor, somebody, you know, that's just us and a little bit of Facebook stuff. And next thing you know, we got guys sending in, guys and gals sending in, you know, pictures. I mean, there's, there's some exciting things about that. People are putting some habitat on the ground. They're, they're making a difference. That's right. That's right. And, you know, man, the competition was so stiff. We were going to try on a score, try to score everybody on a scale of one to 10. Yeah. And you and I discussed it and that just didn't work. cause there's uh, you know, I want to give everybody a six, seven, eight or nine. And, wow. uh, you know, when I get to looking at them and what do you think this one is, man, that's probably a nine. Well, what about this one, man? That's probably a nine. Well, what about this one? Well, that's probably a nine. Well, we can't have that many ties. Right. So, so now we're on a, we decided to go with a score of zero to a hundred and, uh, man, the lowest that I've scored so far, I think is, uh, still in the seventies. So, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I think everybody, and the way I, you know, it's easy for me to think about school grades, you know, uh, I don't think there's anybody lower than a 70 than a, you know, a C average. I don't think we got any, any people that have submitted anything that's below C average. I mean, everybody's that or better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're doing something and, you know, especially, and, and the ones I've scored low is because it looks like a small area and the background still looks closed canopy or they've got some big brush piles, you know, around in places that I know a predator could hang out in. Um, or it it's grass component is just still too strong and uh, or I'm seeing sod forming grasses on the ground underneath some of their their brood habitat but man you know I'm seeing a bunch of 92s 94 96s so far the high score I've got is 96 but um I'm really having to uh restrain myself a little bit because we're going to have a bunch of them in the nineties. And so I'm, I'm even wrote down some scores, you know, I've got like right now I've got four or five ninety fours. So I'm, I'm going to go back to just those pictures and say, okay, they can't all be equal. I'm going to have to analyze this a little harder and figure out one's got to be a little better than the rest. So now I'm going to have to change or alter those scores a little little bit you know just a point or two at least to kind of get some differential so what i thought was we would all kind of do that of course i know everybody's busy but you know and you may have to kind of keep coming back to it but we would all kind of do that same thing and then when we get done we've got 10 or 12 different people that have scored i would just average you know everybody's gonna judge uh let's see who's somebody we can pick on um let's uh let's pick on Jesse Knox. So, you know, Jesse Knox has got an entry that I scored at a 92. You know, maybe you look at it and uh give him an 87 and somebody gives him a 98 and somebody gives him a uh 84. Well, we'll average all those together out of however many people end up scoring. I think there's 12 of us, but assuming we can get everybody to do it in a timely fashion, but still yet, instead of adding all those together, we'll average them. And then that'll be the average score. And everybody may score something different. Y'all may see something that you like better than what I saw, or that you don't like as much as what I saw. And uh, then we'll, uh, you know, then we can kind of back up. And if we get some ties, then we'll have to have everybody kind of look at them again and say, all right, we got a tie between this and this. We're going to have to, y'all going to have to rescore these two. Well, so a co- there's a couple of thoughts there too, man, is that uh, I had some guys come visit uh, last Friday and uh, they wanted to look at some stuff, some, you know, grazing projects and this and that and the other. And one of them dudes has submitted uh, an entry and he's like, man, I hope I do well because I need a drip torch so bad. He's he's <laughs> he's been he's been burning with a big lighter. 
Well, don't tell me his name. I don't want any influence <laughs> on on uh, how I score somebody. So he's been burning with a big lighter. Now that's uh, that's a that's desire to improve habitat, you know. And he's been doing it. He's been burning his place, just going out there and lighting the leaves on fire and letting it go, and doesn't and then go somewhere else and light another little spot and let it go. You know, he don't he don't have a drip torch. So hey, that's how lightning used to strike. You yeah, know, this yeah. spot would start burning, and it just kind of go from there. Some of it be backing fire, some of it head fire, some yeah. of it point fire. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. not against that. Other than I just don't have time to sit there and wait on it. So most everything we do, we usually end up ringing it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we try to get it burned and and uh, and get get it get it done. But um, and, and then you know another thing I was I was thinking about is a lot of these a lot of these are, are so close that, uh, it almost feels like, a, a you know, a sporting event, you know, what, what's going to separate number one, two, and three, or four, five, six, seven, or whatever, what's going to separate them is, is a very narrow margin. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad we got several great prizes because, you know, I figure we'll give prizes definitely to more than one person. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think we uh, try and share the love as much as we can, and and uh, you know, and get get some good tools in the in the right hands. You know, and I I don't want to advertise our scores to anybody, but I would, and and I don't want anybody to know what any particular judge scored, but I do want every single entry to have a score. So if somebody, you know, we're not going to advertise them, but if somebody calls and says, you know, hey, I would like to know what my score was, I'd like to be able to tell them, well, it's an 87. Now, I don't know who scored you how or who scored you what. They were averaged together. I destroyed everybody's scores. So, you know, this is what you got was an 87. And, you know, I really can't tell you why, what they saw or what they didn't see. So. Right. I want to kind of protect the judges, but um, but I want to uh, I want to be able to let everybody know kind of what their score was. So, and and it's it's tough enough that um, uh, boy, by looking right now, you're gonna have to be you're gonna have to be higher than ninety four, I think, to win this Joker. That that's pretty tough. That's pretty tough because there's some good stuff in there, man. Well, yeah, that, that will be, that's pretty strong. That's pretty strong. Now, you know, that's, these are my scores. So, you know, everybody may score a little bit different, may score on a whole different, um, you know, that's what I used to say about some of the teachers I had. Well, you know, they just didn't score anybody very high. That's why I brought home this bad grade. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. If, we, if we had a little better teacher, they might score me a little higher. So, I don't know. I may be scoring a little too high. I may be that good teacher that scores higher. I may be that bad one. I don't. I don't know yet. But well, and here's the other thing, though. In, in all honesty, uh, while I may have been real happy with the C, my my mom was not. Yeah. And and she was kind of the enforcer of that, you know, uh, when I was in school. Now, when I got in college, you know, it, it was a different deal, and. Um, uh, And I did very well there. I got something on some diploma, some words I can't pronounce. Don't even know what really it means. It's just should just put good job and five gold stars stuck on it. I'd have been, I'd have been happy. Yeah. But, 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 you know, the, 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 the thing about it is if you do have a C average on your habitat, your neighbor's an F. Oh, that's the whole key to this whole deal. Yeah. Habitat ain't got to be perfect. You just got to be better than your neighbors. And if you're doing something, it's more than he's doing. Yep. He ain't doing crap. That's right. That's right. So if you're if you're a C average man, you're the head of the class in your in your area. Yeah, yeah. If if he's over there trying to trying to kill all of his bass and crappie, and you're making spawning habitat, you're doing way more than he is. Yep. Yep. He's slinging out corn and trying to plant a food plot or something. And meanwhile, you're growing groceries all year long and you've got bedding and, 
brood rearing and nesting and bugging opportunities out to wazoo and and you know thermal cover and i, I mean you, you got all these things working in your favor and uh you know he he's buying corn he's buying corn pouring it out on the ground you know i'm i'm still hearing that there there's uh i just heard about a guy the, another guy the other day that uh was talking about yeah he started feeding corn already because he wants to you know, he wants to make sure that he's holding the bucks when uh season opens up. So he's already started feeding feeding corn to his deer. And I'm like, I just I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And most of these guys that are doing that have just junk habitat. Oh yeah. They're they're and and they're killing what turkey and quail they've got. I mean, this is July, man. July. Uh you know, you're killing them and you're hurting your deer. And I don't care where you stand on CWD. Um, at this point in time, you got to know it's not a hoax. It's, it's a real, it's a real disease and putting that many miles in the same pot all year long, probably ain't the best idea. No, no, I don't, I don't have an issue. You know, if you're in DMAP or you've got an abundance of deer, and you're trying to thin some does, you know, there's a difference in baiting and feeding. You know, if you want to dump some corn on the ground or some rice bran on the ground or something during hunting season so that a kid can get a shot at a doe or so that you can kill two or three of them from each location or something like that, you know, you've got, you know, we got one farm that we got 50 does to shoot and one we got 20 to shoot and one we got 10 to shoot. You know, you're not going to do that unless you're dumping something on the ground to attract the does in the area up there so you can shoot them. I don't have an issue with that. What I have an issue with is people that think they're doing good by feeding corn in the summertime. You're not doing anything for your deer. You know, I've, I've heard stories about people feeding cattle and well, we don't have any in, we're out of hay and grains too expensive so we've been feeding our cows straw, wheat straw, to get them by, you know, as a filler to help get them by. Well, you're not doing anything. You know, I don't want my deer to fill up on something that's not providing anything for them at a time of the year that they could be filling up on natural vegetation, natural browse that's providing all kinds of stuff for them. So, you know, same way with, with putting out minerals and salt, you know, the more of that they consume, the less that they're eating. Um, so, you know, I don't have a problem putting out uh, some minerals or something. If you want to try to take some inventory, I just put some out last week um, in one spot on 1,200 acres and put a camera over it just so I can kind of start getting some inventory. But I know it's not benefiting my deer. I'm doing it for my own use, just to kind of see what I've got going on out there, what we've got buck-wise, and get some pictures and see them kind of grow a little bit here in the final stages of antler development. Um, but I don't want so much out there that they're filling up on that and not uh, not eating stuff that can provide more lactation for uh, nursing fawns, for the does to nurse fawns, or provide more inches of antler for the bucks that we want to shoot. So fill up on something beneficial, not crap. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah, man, I think, um, I think if people will sit back and reflect and they think about and, and understand at least the basics of fish habitat and you apply that, to your farm in the timber uh, and you, you, you're building, you know, bedding, nesting, brooding, uh, escape cover, you know, you're doing those kinds of things. You are mitigating predation way more than you can with steel. Oh, absolutely. And you're mitigating extreme weather you're mitigating against drought and against flooding and against uh 
rainfall and against extreme temperatures, whether it be hot or cold temperatures, uh, you're mitigating against a whole lot of things. Yes. And you're mitigating against all predators, like you said, not just the ones that you can catch in a in a trap, but uh, against avian predators and reptiles and everything that wants to eat a poulter and egg. That's right. So you can't do that with anything else. And besides all that, you're providing everything that those poach chicks and fawns need to survive. The, yep. the food sources, whether it be bugs or seeds or leaves or uh, woody stems or brambles or what it might be, you're providing that along with it. So I don't understand when these people say, well, I just don't, I just don't get what you're talking about, how habitat does anything. You know, I've got deer and I've got turkey. You know, what why do I need to change habitat? Um you know, some people are just not going to ever get it. They're just not ever going to understand it because they don't want to. Yep. Yep. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, you got anything else? Man, nothing worth telling right now. All right. Well, um, we got some cool stuff coming up. Uh, we got some people that want to join us. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll try to dive into some of that soon, and we got some people who just we've been playing phone tag with, and but uh, we got some great stuff coming up. So um, we hope to catch y'all next time. Thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll get these uh, brood habitat scores put together as quick as we can, and we'll let y'all know results as soon as we know. So thank y'all for listening.